0: This is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable.
1: It is inhuman, it is inhuman at the face Characters at the edges and on the edge Remaining a perpetual possibility Lonely, violent, deeply American life Only
0: in
2: a world of speculation True ease in writing comes from art, not chance Very fine is my valentine, very fine and very mine You're listening
0: to the Grand Podcast of this with John Pistelli Great and puffed up with his retinue
2: Hey everybody, you're listening to The Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your co-host, John Pistelli, and I'm here with the most powerful man in Hollywood, Sam Worthington.
0: That's right, and I'm here with the prophet of the post-left, John Pistelli. John, what's on your mind today?
2: Today, Sam, we're going to have what I, I think is a first. We're going to have a full episode devoted to our conversation with a guest.
0: Very exciting, John. Who's coming on the pod?
2: So let me uh, introduce our guest, and then we'll go right into the interview. Sound good, Sam? Sure. All right. So our guest is the uh, internet writer and prophet of technology default friend, also known as Catherine D. You can find her at uh, on Twitter as default friend and on Substack as default friend, uh, where you'll definitely want to follow and subscribe to her. Uh, she is a writer- She's appeared in publications from The Washington Examiner to Unheard to—sorry, um, I'm blanking.
0: Unheard.
2: <laughs> Unheard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what are these new, right, publications? Bring me up today. If you, if you can't remember them, then I'm doomed.
2: No, no. Uh, let me think. The American Spectator— um,
0: What's that one with the Catholics that they just started?
2: Oh, Compact. Compact. I think she's been in Compact. Yeah. Hold on. We'll have to ask her. Is Compact a sexual word? No, I think they mean it is Oh, as you mean
0: like an agreement. A
2: religious term. Okay. Yes. <laughs> what what would it be sexually? <laughs> she was also uh, this is a nice segue. She was also the co-host of the somewhat I think increasingly legendary uh, podcast that's now defunct called After the Orgy.
0: Après la Orgy.
2: Yes. Um and in fact, uh, I think as her co-host pointed out on an early episode, they were based, they borrowed that title from a quote from Jean Baudrillard. Um, And they did uh, a number of interesting interviews with authors like Neil Labute and Delicious Tacos and others. Um, I think uh, Tao Lin. Uh, and they, I think they, that collaboration ended, but you can find the archives on the podcast she currently hosts called The Computer Room, which featured, uh, which also features really interesting guests. I think recently she had on the anarcho primitivist John Zerzon, so you want to check that out. And I, full disclosure, also appeared uh, on that podcast, which is kind of hosted through her Substack. And we talked about this new right back in November. And I think one of the interesting things will be, because that was before all this spate of mainstream journalism about it that we've discussed on our show. So it'll be interesting to catch up with her, see where we are with that, and then what lies beyond that um, in the culture wars, because she's a great thinker about the way the online world intersects with culture, politics, and where that might be going.
0: You know, I'm beginning to think that the new right May just be new, <laughs> and not right. Well, it's certainly right, but
2: uh-huh.
0: <laughs> that anything that's neo, that's new, that's that's a, claims to have revolutionary combinations and innovations in their in their ideology and theories. You know, it's it's good practice to cock one eyebrow at that when they present themselves in this way. But I'm beginning to think that there might be aspects of them that are, in fact.
2: New. New. And I think that that owes a lot to the technological environment in which they emerged.
0: Well, I think it owes a lot to Default Friend.
2: In what sense?
0: Well, I don't know. I just wanted to give her some renown <laughs> before I talked to her for the very first time. Right.
2: Well, with that, uh, <laughs> let's go right into our interview. Cool.
0: Default Friend.
2: So welcome on to the pod, Default Friend. Um, So this is a bit of a follow-up. I appeared on your podcast back in November, and we talked about the rise of the new right, post-left. I think we called them the hipster reactionaries. And we, um, in the true spirit of hipsterdom, we talked about them just a few months before they sort of hit the mainstream in ways we've seen with the articles in BuzzFeed and the article in Tablet on Curtis Yarvin and the article in Vanity Fair that sort of considered them as a whole crew. I mean, I think we even should congratulate ourselves on being ahead of that curve. (laughs) Um, uh, And so I thought maybe we'd begin by following up. Uh, I just I'm interested in what you thought of that spate of mainstream press coverage for this group of people. Uh, what you think about them in general, and where you think it goes from there?
1: I mean, it, it, these articles have the problems that, and I don't think this is the fault of the journalists, uh, but they suffer from the same issue that all sort of uh, scene pieces have, where it's a lot of different things that are adjacent but not necessarily interconnected in the way that's being put forth in these pieces. You know, they're, they're being they're being conflated. Um. So I mean that's I, that was sort of my main takeaway that it's like this it's still it's still like very poorly defined. So people will be like well the right is so ideologically inconsistent. Well no they're not. It's the fed Post and neo reactionaries and then what the ladies at Red Scare, you know like what all of those like those three groups are all and then Amanda Milius. I mean like they, mm-hmm. they don't they don't have the same they may like each other and they may be friends, but they don't have the same political program.
2: Right. What do you think about the sort of maybe if we the conspiracy theory framing of the issue, which is that's what it's like now. But nefariously behind the scenes, Peter Thiel is making this into a a whole, you know, vanguard movement.
1: Um, I mean, I think there I don't think that's true. Our, mm-hmm. What I think is that it what people neglect to um, acknowledge, because I think this is common knowledge, is that, you know, Founders Fund, more than Peter Thiel specifically, puts money behind ideas that they think are cool, right? They 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 invest in companies, but also, like, look at Hereticon, and look at who is speaking at Hereticon. Uh, it was mostly, like, rationalists, honestly. And the rationalists very famously, I mean, have a, a Thiel connection. And I, you know, I don't exactly think that Zero H.P. Lovecraft is running after... Ayla, you know, or Leverage <laughs> yes. Research or whoever else, you know, Yakowski, and saying, like, well, you guys are doing great work, you know? Mm-hmm. I think of uh, the Teal Network, um, you know, to whatever extent that funding is happening, and I don't know one way or the other, but just assuming support, uh, you know, via by, by things like Hereticon, right? Um, he's just like, oh, these people are thinking of cool things, like, you know, maybe I'll throw them a bone, whether that's a conference or a couple of bucks for their podcast, or... Maybe hiring them because they've shown that they have a you know a talent for research or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I hope somebody writes the Zero HP Lovecraft Lo, uh fanfic. Uh, <laughs> that <laughs> probably that already would, been written. That probably I has. <laughs> <what it is. laughs> zero HP Lovecraft read it?
0: Kat, are you saying it's it's more practical than ideological? Uh,
1: I mean, there might be some like ideological interest, but I think it's just like I mean, it, this happens everywhere. I don't think it's like teal specific. It's like if you're doing something interesting publicly and someone believes in you, they'll support you. And I mean, this happens with artists. Uh, if you go to any museum ever, right? Like there's a wall full of donors. I mean, I think it's closer to that than some sort of like nefarious plan to like, uh, you know, create these celebrities who are espousing like human biodiversity or whatever. Mm. You know, I don't know, what the, <laughs> I don't know what the accusation is. I think that's very short-sighted. And I think that's because people are still angry about Gawker. Um, and they want uh, they, they want to paint him as this villain when really he's just like he's some dude and you know all venture capital firms um, throw some money into independent projects they think are interesting. I mean, you know people mentioned the uh, what MPCC fest or whatever, right And that might might have had a, you know a teal connection. Well if it did, I mean, you know what else is is venture backed? South by Southwest, like, who gives a fuck? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so do you think you you had on your Substack, uh, you had a, an article where you posted the curve of adoption of technology and the way that maps onto the adoption of fashions and subcultures, and it starts with innovators, and then there's early adopters, and then there's the early majority. And you posited that we're probably in the early majority phase of the... The, uh, the new right, where even maybe not like the average suburbanite in Ohio or whatever is picking up this vocabulary, but people who are, you know, in sort of middle brow literate are starting to pick it up. Um, so, and I think you once said that eventually there will be like Bronze Age pervert mugs in Target, the way there are mugs that say they, them. Uh, so do you think we're still on track for that?
1: I do and I mean look uh, unfortunately for, for Bap right he won't be the one that gets the mug it'll be the guy who's sanitizing his beliefs and I mean like he you know he and his, his friends tore me a new one for saying that but mm-hmm. it's pretty obvious that he has created a very like uh, you know mimetic uh, aesthetic or I mean I, I I spent like a lot of time reading this week so I don't know if he he created it but he popularized it for sure right Um and someone's going to come along and take away the stuff that's, uh, you know, that offends middle-class folks and throw it on a T-shirt and sell it at Walmart. It's not like we're <laughs> already on that. Tr- the train has left the station.
2: hmm And then uh, the inevitable way the fashion cycle works is then it will become banal and middle brow and of we'll course, be sick of yeah. it. Yeah, and then we'll be on to the next thing. Um, so maybe that's an, a good segue. I think one of your theories as well is that when we get tired of the culture wars, Uh, Because it does seem like there's these flare-ups of the culture wars, like every generation, and then they sort of dissipate. And you have a theory that the next thing that will divide us and be the object of our contention will be fights over technology. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's like—I have not fleshed this out super well, but I think like—and you already see it because like a lot of these new right people are like really getting into— um, like Alul and McLuhan. And I think that's sort of it. They don't realize it's in preparation, but I think it's sort of like a canary in the coal mine that we're going that way. We're going to have three three factions, people who are against big tech. Um, and then we're going to have the, sort of the crypto optimist crowd. I've been calling them techno optimist, but I think crypto optimist is probably a better way of putting it. And then sort of like these neo-Luddites who are sort of, they're probably closer to the crypto folks than not. Um, I mean, I was just on a call with someone I'm speaking at Consensus in Austin, which is a big crypto conference. And I was doing some research for a panel that I'm moderating. And, uh, you know, I was speaking to a security researcher and he was like, uh, next presidential election, like the big issue is going to be big tech's overreach. And it's, it's you know, we've heard rumblings, but people haven't, it, it hasn't been fully fleshed out yet. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going, I think now we've added fuels to the fire. Like it's not just, oh, uh, you know, Facebook is brainwashing your mom with QAnon or whatever, right? Like it's nice. There's other other issues, right? Like um, I think Tucker Carlson getting into the detransitioner movement is sort of, that's, you know, that's a domino. Um, The people, you know, sort of increasingly speaking about um, like physical health, that's a domino. I mean, there's a lot of, I think it's really interesting that a a lot of right-wingers now are going really, really hard on like, you know, mind mind body split, and it's like you are your body. That mm-hmm. to me is like, uh oh, we're <laughs> we're we're changing course a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I, let's let's come back in a minute to the detransitioners. Let's see if we can all get uh, canceled. But before we do, I wanted to ask, uh, how, how do you see? Um, so you labeled the factions anti big tech, the crypto optimists, and then the neo luddites. How do you see that mapping onto the political terrain of left right?
1: Um, so, I think like anti big tech might encompass like both sides, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you see it a little bit on you, you see it on the left, but it seems sort it seems like big tech is more captured by the like aesthetic left. You know, I don't want to become like very pedantic about like the <laughs> plot. You know, um, I think the crypto people are they they're occasionally. Uh, you know, sort of like woke, um, but they're more sort of like this third thing. Like, they may be libertarian, but they're kind of on their own. They're they they're kind they're kind of on their own island. Um, and then um, you have the the like the neo luddites are really that. That's the I think really that what the what the right is going to turn into.
0: Mm-hmm. Is it okay to be a luddite?
1: I mean, I don't know what "okay" means, right?
0: <laughs> I <laughs> is guess it, is wh- it socially acceptable to be a Luddite? I don't think so.
1: I don't think so, and I, I suspect that we're gonna get more. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if in like two years, um, you know how like we've had like like Evola somehow got some treatment as like a dangerous thinker. I think that like uh, the mainstream is gonna discover. Like Lincoln and like that's gonna be mm-hmm. it's gonna become like somehow white supremacist to like, you know, not want to use social media.
2: Right. Well you you got some pushback I, I noticed on your interview with John Zerzon. Uh the comments under that on Substack oh, were pretty that, yeah, contentious. People,
1: <laughs> people are mad. I mean, and he is very sort of He's a um, leftist. Yeah. He he's very he he has all the like approved beliefs, but people get very, very angry when you start uh, critiquing tech in that way.
2: Mm-hmm. So, do you do you find that you yourself fall into one of these factions, or you're just trying to figure it out from I mean, from a distance?
1: I, th- I it would be disingenuous to align with anything, right? I'm like mm-hmm. I live online. I'm like an avatar in the ether. I don't mm-hmm. exist offline.
2: <laughs> what do you think about? Um, where do you think maybe the the new, the, the kind of rise of based Elon Musk falls into this paradigm? How's that going to affect things?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think he's sort of like, he represents maybe like anti-tech, uh, weirdly like anti-big tech um, mm-hmm. and maybe sort of in this like crypto optimist space. I mean, Martin Shkreli, like getting online and uh, immediately diving into the Miladies.
2: Right. That's another thing. We'll come back to that in a minute, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Yeah, let's go back to the mind-body thing and the uh, detransitioners, because you also had on your podcast um, one of the more interesting and maybe controversial detransitioners who was, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Limpida. Yes. Uh, Okay, Uh, and that was a really interesting conversation. And it looks like there, as the detransitioners' testimony comes out more and more, um, and is starting to hit the mainstream. I think the we're recording the day after Bill Maher did a uh, monologue about youth transition, so that's becoming a more and more prominent topic. Um, And I think the the kind of philosophical right that's interested in this topic. Is interested in it in that level of this gnostic split between mind and body that they see the left promoting, and and a lot of the detransitioners themselves will say things like, "Well, when I was in the movement, what it was was I was a pure spirit in an evil world," which is definitely echoes my experience when I was on the left. So uh, I was wondering where you see the detransitioner movement going, and uh, and what you think of that.
1: I think it has like real potential to shape. Um sort of the narrative about how we use the internet. Um, I think, you know, on one hand, it could be sort of the right-wing version of, you know, our sons are getting radicalized off YouTube, right? And then, the, you know, they, they'll sort of tweak it with, like, you know, Discord groomers and, and Tumblr groomers, right? But I, I think that because it's led by people who, um, you know, are speaking to their real experiences and not sort of like these fantasies, that's why it's more philosophical, um and I think it's going to be taken just sort of like a step further it's not really going to be the radical like there is going to be the radicalization talking point but I don't think that it's going to be just that it's going to be we need to it we need to stop these this type of fantasizing I mean I, I see people like critique stuff like as sort of like I don't know esoteric as is it a problem that like we narrate our own lives right like is the way we, like, internal, like, our, is our internal monologue shaped by the social media we use? And, like, is it actually better to have no internal monologue at all? Like, where, like, that's, like, that's, you know, that that's something you would read in, like, a religious text. That's, yeah. like, some out there stuff for someone who is an activist, I think.
2: hmm Do you think there's any, so, I mean, my own knee-jerk reaction is always to say, oh, it's a moral panic when people start talking about online radicalization. But do you think there is any—and I do. I will always get nervous when laws get involved and when, you know, we just had the whole thing with Nina Jankowicz and the disinformation board yeah. and, and all of that. And, I'm a fan of Nina. Yeah, you would be. Uh, <laughs> we have a little political tension on the pod. Uh, <laughs>
0: what, what's not the like? I mean, come on.
2: <laughs> but, um, but I was thinking, is there any— uh, is there a role for at least society, if not the law, to play in maybe correcting for some of the spread of extreme ideologies one way or the other, whether it be a gender ideology or a racist ideology on the right? Like, is, there, is there a point at which it's legitimate to come in and say, yeah, let's let's maybe do what we can to tamp this down?
1: I mean, I think an interesting thing is like all of these people, if you talk to them, they're just online too much. Um, and they're not in touch with what it's like to be integrated in the world. And you can't really legislate that, right? Like, you can't, mm-hmm. like, I think the issue is, I mean, it could happen with anything, really. So it's, the issue is less like, uh, you know, how do we moderate um, platforms? And should we be, like, policing, like, one-on-one conversations or, like, you know, 10-on-one or whatever? Um, and we're like, how do we get people offline? How do we change our culture? Like, I, I think, like, maybe, like, even, like, urban planning solutions would be more helpful than, trying to have a disinformation board um mm-hmm. which is like a weird thing i don't know if i if i ever explain it well enough but like one thing i was thinking it's like shopping malls probably like bringing those back would pro- like it's not a, a fix like a, a total fix but like that is a healthier way for people to to discover new subcultures and to engage with different things and it's like your parent is bringing you to the mall and you're, you're physically engaging with something you can touch um, and it's kind of doing the same thing as the internet, but the, it has – the curtain closes on your time at the mall. Um, so even a return to something like that, I think, while we figure out, like, what the next steps are <laughs> is better.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and in a way, it's – it's online is legitimately out-competing the real world because the real world sucks. So we have to yeah. – we have to build it back up. Um, yeah, are there really no more malls?
1: I mean, they exist, but they're kind of – I mean – they're kind of wastelands.
2: Mm -hmm. You grew up in, in, I don't know exactly how old you are, but you're, you're like of the last generation to have caught the mall culture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I just wrote a piece about Abercrombie and Fitch.
2: Oh, right. Yeah. I saw that. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember myself going to hot topic and everything in the nineties. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, a lot of the, a lot of my exposure to things happened at the mall, like music, subcultures uh stuff like forbidden stuff i wasn't supposed to know Mm -hmm. um different you know you know different insecurities being reinforced and i think that was like definitely uh i mean there's something better about it you know and then like when i did go online to like explore the things i discovered in the physical world was very like limited because it was still very like local the internet was functioned slightly differently
2: right It's interesting there was never a mall radicalization narrative, because one thing I distinctly remember when I was in high school is people talking about how you could buy Mein Kampf in the Walden books at the mall. (laughs) So it seems like it probably was a vector of some kind of extremist. There
1: there was. There (laughs) was. was. It was shut down, like, pretty quick. And, I mean, it was less partisan, too, though. Um, I mean, there is all these debates about, like, is the mall a public square? Um, And should people be able to say whatever they want? Um, and are people, you know, are are teenagers being exposed to, you know, like pro-abortion activists or whatever? Like that was a big one. Oh, wow. Um, and you know, the uh, I think like the ACLU stepped in and they were like, "Look, it is a public square, um, and mm-hmm. people could say whatever they want. And if you don't want your kid exposed to that tough shit, and you know, yeah. don't don't let them go. I mean." <laughs>
2: Those were the days. Now the ACLU would say we need Nina Jankowitz in the mall to police right. what people say. Um, we should stop picking on Nina Jankowicz. <laughs> well,
0: she, she has a wonderful um, sense of composition and, and satire in her musical numbers. Her music, right. right her musical stuff. I appreciate it as a musician.
1: She, I do not—I <laughs> don't understand the explanation that they offered and that, like, Taylor Lorenz wrote about in her Washington Post piece, like— it, they were the target of like the classic, you know, disinformation camp. I mean, yeah. she's cyber bullied. And I, I don't doubt that the the bullying she received was genuinely scary. I've re- I have like I have, I don't know, like uh, one one hundredth of her audience or something like, like a much, you know, much less than that even. And I've received some scary, scary stuff. So mm-hmm. I can't even imagine, you know, being a government official, like what you're mm-hmm. receiving. But like, I mean, at a certain point, you have to to like grok that that's how the internet works like
2: <laughs> yeah well that's do you think that that's they're mistaking the swarm effect of social media for a coordination campaign like it's just enough that jack pasobic said it and then all his followers just imitated him it didn't have to be a a scheme right
1: Sheep. like i it's it's weird that they it's also like I, this is me being nitpicky but it's also weird that we're like calling him like a far right influencer when he's just like just a regular, you know, conservative, Yeah. yeah. like that's also, I mean, I, cause I think that, at, I mean that maybe it's not nitpicky because it's sort of like, it sort of implies that, you know, we have these like uh, fascists, like lit- like people who would like literally identify that way themselves, you know, up on an, a, a podium being like, all right, now we're all going to hide in our discord servers and discuss how we're going to ruin this woman's life and murder her or whatever. And really it's like your boomer mom, like, you know, adding her on Twitter and saying she's ugly. I mean, that's right. probably what it was. And the odd death threat, which I don't, again, I don't doubt is scary, but yeah. it's not, not the same as a political, same as terrorism, which is really what they're implying.
2: Right. Yeah. And they, I don't know whether it's opportunistic or not, but they seem to not have a sense of what the far right actually is. I saw a tweet from one of these guys who said, why doesn't the far right ever say, isn't it a shame we let all these Italians and Poles into the country? And I was like, Oh, you're not actually reading the far right, like right. <laughs> like they they do say that, but well, Jack you know Jack I don't doesn't.
1: Well, of course, because he's he's not far right, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, here's here's what I don't understand. I think it must be opportunistic because you know I've been a I feel bad at how often I mention her, but I guess she's sort of on my my beat, so I I have to. But uh, Taylor the really understands the internet. And she has such a great, like, especially in her specific uh, areas of interest. Like, um, she's, I mean, she's made really good points that are just going to be lost time because she writes bullshit like this. I don't believe that she genuinely thinks that he's far right. Like, either that's coming from an editor who says, like, we got it. This is fan service. Or, like, she's just trying to create drama because there's no way that she doesn't understand these nuances that... I can understand, like, my dad not understanding, but someone who's online and as deeply and is as observant as she is. Like, it's really strange to me.
2: Mm-hmm. Did you—I You? Uh, you I saw you applied for the job to be the new Taylor Lorenz at The New York Times. Did you hear back?
1: <laughs> oh, of course not. I mean, I, I I got encouragement from all sorts of blue checks in my DMs. I mean, here's the thing. I, I don't think— you know, I think a lot of my readers would love to see something like that happen. But I like intellectually, like I know that there's people who have been eating dirt in New York and, you know, making $30,000 a year just for a chance at an interview would be. I mean, I think it would be unjust for me to even be considered.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that might not be the, the growth mindset you need to speak in the language I mean, of these people. I, but...
1: <laughs> I'm too fair. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Um, all right, well, this will be disturbing, but let's return to the subject of uh, people, I shouldn't laugh, of people being groomed in discords. Could you explain the Milady situation to us? You touched on oh, it man. earlier, um, and it's a little bit of a mystery to, to, to us.
1: I don't know that much about it, um, but as far as I've been able to gather from like people in my DMs and like various outings or whatever... Um, one of the the leaders of the art collective that created these nfts they're like these you know cute little chibi uh like vaguely like anime looking chicks and um was involved in something called uh Kaliak, which is a uh, kali accelerationism and was under another account called mia um, and is in reality a 35 year old man or even older um, and th- this is like, I, again, I don't know much about this, so I could be totally wrong, but, but this is my, my preface here. Um, and was known for being sort of not only kind of a febophilic, but having like, what oh, seemed like an anorexia fetish. Um, would have these group chats of just, uh, young women, um, sending him their thigh gaps and talking about, uh, restriction and, um, different sort of like, purposely provocative kind of esoteric internet things where it's disturbing and I'm not excusing it, but it's all, it's often a language of people who are kind of terminally online and they mean it, but they kind of don't. And it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to know to where to draw the line. Um, I don't have firm opinions on it just cause like, I don't even know if I'm properly relaying the story and it's so hard to like, know how dangerous these things are. Um, because sometimes these things happen and it's all teenagers. It's, you know, it's a blind leading the blind. Sometimes it's it is older men like in this case, um, and they really are like pretty creepy. Um, I remember in my day there was a guy who went by the, the username Flatchested, and he was known to go into like pro eating disorder um, like live journal groups and stuff. And I mean. You know, it was just really creepy. And there was there was all these there's all these stories and these things happened all the time and it was it was kind of like underreported on and, and very, very scary. So I you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what happened, so I don't wanna I don't wanna vilify anyone.
2: Sure. Um and does that do you think that in any way sort of taints the way in which this has become kind of a trendy uh sort um, of part of the avant-garde of the new right? Or
1: so I know um I don't know if they it's weird because I think there's kind of two Factions. I think we're going to see more of a split between sort of the like wet brain type of right wing, wet brain Urbit, Milady, uh, contain is another one mm-hmm. um, and then the sort of um, you know uh, more like Amanda Milius Curtis Yarvin, uh, Alex Kashuta. again like three people who I would imagine are, have different philosophies and, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I, think, I think that there's a conflation between these two groups um, in a lot of these pieces and again, like not vilifying or passing judgment or on any of the people involved just sort of saying, I think that like an Honor Levy has something different to say than Alex Kishuda, right? Like that seems pretty mm-hmm. obvious.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the, the gateway for a lot of these people was just the stultification of culture by the left. Um, right. In the, you know, in the spaces of academia and literary production. And so they almost ended up by... Uh, by default to invoke your name, uh, uh, on the on this kind of new right, but without necessarily having a fully-fledged conviction about it?
1: Right. I mean, and the other thing is they can all be right-wing in different ways, and I think that's something the left really doesn't understand for some reason. Um, you know, like, again, like, they say, like, oh, they're, well, they're incoherent. It's like, well, are they incoherent, or do they have, like, different philosophies that, like, they they've done the the work and like this is what they believe and because there's not enough of them in each sort of category that kind of all these strange bedfellows have to join together in opposition to a a common enemy which is the mainstream
2: right and as the mainstream maybe adopts some of their ideas then the whole scene will shift around it
1: yeah i mean i think that's very possible
2: yeah i mean honor levy could convert to marxism in 10 years
1: I don't know if that—if <laughs> I see—I think Marxism's been—there's uh, no alpha left in it, if you will. Right.
2: Yeah, it's too—yeah, I was thinking about that, that it's just—it's kind of terminally uncool at this point. Um Yeah. So, on that note, um, another thing that you had touched on, I think, when you were on Justin Murphy's podcast, that um, I hadn't, it was the first I had heard of it when you were on his podcast, and then I looked into it, and now it looks like it's blowing up, is um, the Mars Review of Books, which oh, is, yeah. uh, for our listeners, it's like a New York Review of books style literary journal um, that's partially going to have New York-based literary people in it, such as the literary critic Christian Lorenzen is maybe the most famous literary name there, but then also a bunch of people from Urbit. Um, So first of all, can you explain Erbit to us?
1: Um, Well, look, I'm I'm not going to try to uh, explain the the tech. Um, I mean, as, as far as I understand it, it's like Uh, So everyone gets a planet. You could also get a galaxy. And a a planet is, you connect, planets connect to one another and communicate with one another. It's supposed to be a peer-to-peer internet as far as I'm concerned. And then in practice, it kind of shakes out to be similar to like Usenet. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm explaining it well or doing it justice.
2: Is a is a we're we're pretty tech illiterate. So is a planet?
1: Whoa, 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 whoa!
0: <laughs> Speak for yourself, John.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, he's setting up this whole interview, so I shouldn't say that. But I'm pretty tech illiterate. Is a planet the equivalent of like owning your own domain name or your profile um, on a platform or?
1: I think it'd be closer to owning your own domain. Okay. Um, and you could like keep stuff on your planet, um, and you can join groups and communicate with other people. Um, and then your your planet name is how you show up.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and
1: then I think I think like galaxies are you have multiple planets, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't really used it, so I don't. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I, I sometimes I'm explain. I'm like, I actually don't really. I don't. I don't totally know.
0: Right. What now, is, is, okay. Is is Orbit? Uh, is that a pun on the sound that a frog makes? Because a bunch <laughs> of frogs are involved? Erbit. Erbit.
2: <laughs> this predates the frog thing, right, There, Because Yervin yeah. invented it in the 2000s. I okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, he is a I sage. Fr- I
1: actually, I think frog, uh, frogs existed. I mean, peace to be believed. I don't know for sure. I don't know the history of it very well. But Thomas 777, right? Who that is, guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he invented the frog thing, I think. I mean, I, th- I think he he considers himself the grandfather of Frog Twitter. Okay. Um, obviously, people say you know frogs because of Pepe. Right. Uh, but, um, yeah. I mean, anyway, I think it's supposed to be like like ur er, like you are you know as a uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like
2: primordial. Erbit. Yeah. Urban. Yeah. Right. No, like ur er, like ur er text or er, er sprock. Not like urbit. Yeah. Urbit. No.
1: <laughs> and then ton, which is the parent company of Urbit. Is from the Borges story.
2: Right, about the intellectuals taking over the world with you their... Know, one, yeah, of
1: the,
0: that... one, one of the effective things about the online right has been the frog and the imagery of the frog, and it's cute and it's provocative and it's subversive but not too subversive and it's graphically memorable and it's, it, it codes an in-group. But do you think the left needs an online animal avatar equal to the frog or surpassing um, it?
1: I mean what you know what is the left right i is, is there a left yeah. well, maybe
0: What's if, left, m- maybe so. if, maybe if, <laughs> maybe if <laughs> they got curious. the right maybe if they got the right animal, then they could come together
2: so what um what would be the benefit for a person to use Urbit and not use some other more mainstream platform
1: uh, I think censorship is a big one uh privacy is another one, mm-hmm. but I don't. I don't totally understand how it how it works. Like, is I don't know if their goal is to create another like internet infrastructure. I know eventually they want their, to create their own computer, like the, their own hardware. I don't know if they're in the process of creating that. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, it's just like you can't be kicked off. Um, I think, but I also don't want to misrepresent them. I know that um, there's a lot of people are creating urban software. I I, I need to. It asked about it all the time, so I need to like add, you know, ask for a download on it.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it does seem like there's not—so Curtis Yarvin founded it, but he's like a pretty staunch materialist atheist. But then it seems like there's this Christian connection it has now, and people like James Poulos is getting into it. And, of course, Teal himself has something to do with it. He's Catholic, so right. there's some— like, it's almost like the, the Christians against the Gnostics of the mainstream internet. There's some sort of religious battle shaping up that I don't quite understand. Excellent.
1: Yeah, like a spiritual, uh, staying human yeah. during a spiritual war. Um, I mean, I I guess because it's like so, um, it's also so difficult to use, and I don't think that Uh, There is like a graphic interface, but I don't think like people really like post photos or anything. There's no like scrolling, so it kind of limits what uh, how how sucked into the vortex you can get,
2: right? Is that why they're trying to bring on board like Honor Levy and some of these? It almost seemed like they're hiring e girls or something from what I saw on Justin Murphy's channel, like they're trying to bring culture in because it's too much of a male nerd space or the nerd space.
1: that, That seems true. Um, it does seem like they're trying to infuse it with culture and, and have people use it as a, you know, a place to meet others and stuff. I mean, this is why it reminds me so much of, like, the early internet, right? Like, maybe in an ideal world, how people use it is, like, uh, as a supplement to, to real life instead of as a replacement to it.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in the Mars Review of Books because it has this— So. You know, where I think both of us, me and Sam, we come from this kind of traditional, like, literary background uh, as far as, like, you know, educated in English departments. And for a long time, the tone...
0: John was my teacher.
2: I was. That's how we met. I was Sam's professor uh, years (laughs) ago. Um, But the attitude there was very anti-tech. And it was always, you know, coming from people like Theodore Adorno and the Frankfurt School. And these are just, like, capitalist pirates with a sheen of technological modernity and you want to stay away from that. Um, and even in the New York Review of Books, even in this decade you find people like Zadie Smith striking that note and and uh, and so it's interesting to me to see this much more traditional New York literary centric, uh, group of people aligning with tech in a way that I think is pretty new and is not something that was typical for most of the 20th century. Um, are you seeing evidence of this confluence? and yeah. what, what do you think's behind it?
1: Um, I mean, I think part of it is like this is a scene where, well, first of all, people in tech want to feel cool. That's, I mean, that's at the most basic level, um, and it's and you know they've been able to through Burning Man and whatever. But as we become more polarized people who don't feel at home with this sort of Burning Man chic, uh, you know, vibe need to find other outlets for that. And a lot of them do have, like, a longing and a lust for uh, culture, you know, for the arts, right? But I think another part of it is these art scenes are so broken and there's so much nepotism and the status games are really tough and there's no money in it, really. Um, Really? (laughs) uh, That was a joke. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I know. Sorry.
1: You you know, so I think it's like, so... I don't know for sure, um, but I would I would bet that like some of these rich startup guys are like I have a couple of bucks I'll fund your literary magazine why not yeah um, and that's where the real sort of uh, the that's that's where they're really meeting you know like he, poets want to write poetry and uh, you know nerds want to feel like they're doing something right they want <laughs> right. to feel cool.
2: And in that sense, you could blame to the extent that we're still in this left right conversation, the left did it to themselves by screwing up these institutions they controlled so badly that so many people feel they have no other choice but to go outside them or around them, even to do anything.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I feel so bad for like people who are still trying to like use the leftist thing to like make a, career you know mm-hmm. uh you know like sort of like on the level of the arts um it's just been so like because plenty of people i'm sure genuinely believe these things but it's been so like abused that like you just you can't help but roll your eyes at these people even if they're saying something really interesting
2: yeah yeah oh your novel is about collective solutions to climate change that's so <laughs> fascinating um, <laughs> um and you have a piece, right? And I just saw the cover. Somebody posted the cover of the Mars but you, you have a piece yeah. yourself uh, coming up, so I, I,
1: I do. I, I had posted it on my Substack. Um, yeah, it's about uh, it's about fem cells, which is uh, you know my I'm always beating that drum.
2: <laughs> oh, tell well, tell us about fem cells. What's what's that um, issue about? You don't have to yeah. like uh, anticipate your article, but what? Uh...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, fem cells are. Sort of, it's sort of like a fake story around around them about you know whether or not they're a community, whether or not there's female incels. But you know, insofar as they exist, they're, they're women who feel that they're invisible uh, because of their their lack of uh, being sexually objectified. Um, and I feel like that side of the story is never really told. Like there are women who, in different circumstances, like um, you know, like they're in their fifties or uh, they're disfigured. Or they're like too—they're too fat, you know. There's all these reasons why it's not—it's um, not simply not getting a high-value ma- mate. It's that you literally are erased um, because there's a lot of contexts in which you do need to, uh, you know, be, you need to be beautiful, and that's—that's that's the only currency that you have. So the, the piece is, uh, the piece is basically about—we um, talk a lot about hookup culture, but we don't talk about the people who can't participate in hookup culture outside of incels.
2: Mm-hmm. That was also the topic. Um, I think I mentioned in the pre-recorded intro that you did uh, a podcast. So your current podcast is called the Computer Room, but you had one, and I think the archives are still in the Computer Room, right? But it was called the they After are. the Orgy. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in that because we're primarily a literary podcast, and that was sort of a literary really podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, again, I think you had called it when you were on Justin Murphy. We're just like transparently doing a sequel to your justin murphy interview um but i think you had called it a work of art and i'm interested in that idea of like podcasts as art so do you want to tell us a little Mm. bit about after the orgy and in what way was it a work of art
1: yeah i mean i had wanted to do a podcast but the, the problem is i tend to ramble and i you know i'm i'm big on camera off and like it's, you know, I, for people who've listened to the computer room, it's, it's, it's honestly, and I'm not saying this to self-deprecate, it's not a great show, right? Like I, I'm a, I'm a fine blogger, but I'm not, I'm not a great podcaster, but I, but, but, but my friend also wanted to do a podcast and I've known her for 15 years. And, um, I was like, all right, well, it's, you know, it'll, it'll be in person as much as possible. I don't, I'm not going to feel uncomfortable on camera with you. We already have a rapport, uh, but we have like a very complicated and strange friendship um, and so the podcast is really like, it's, it's the dissolution of this friendship in real time.
2: Um, wow.
1: yeah. and it, it has like, it, there is a beginning and end and you could, I mean, you could hear the, the relationship fray more and more and more until our final episode with Tao Lin, where it's just like, you know, I mean, no better person to end it with. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. And now it's really like interesting. I got, I remember got I got sucked in for a very kind of, uh. I got sucked into it for a bad reason when I first started listening to it, which is I think on the early episodes, your co-host kept mentioning that she had this famous boyfriend in New York, and I thought— well, you know, the literary artistic cultural world in New York is small enough that I should be able to figure out who this is. I want to know is she fucking Jonathan Franzen? Like, I just got, like, (laughs) pruriently curious about this. (laughs) So that's how I initially got sucked in. Um, And I think I did figure out who it was, like, one episode before it was revealed, but (laughs) um, because that world is so small. Um, But then you know, I got sucked in for that very voyeuristic, prurient reason. But then, you know, the drama of your relationship, but like as it played out, as you were close reading literary texts and interviewing Neil LeBute uh, it, it was it was great. I mean, it's definitely legendary. Um, mm. So, um, is that the artistry of it that you just kind of let that unfold without sort of censoring yourselves?
1: I mean, there is no there is no way to censor it because there is things that like you know there is we would get into real arguments. Um, like one early argument was she sort of blamed me for like enabling tech people to move to Miami. And I was kind of like, girl, like, I don't have any influence at all. You know, (laughs) I I mean, you know, like that was an early fight. But then there was also arguments that were like, we would disagree on certain interpretations of texts that were clearly sort of like proxies for us, you know, working at different jealousy or whatever. Like, um, you know, there we did, we did a short story. I'm I'm blanking on the name, but um, we we did a short story about a, a mother and daughter, and um, you know our interpretations of the of the mother were reflections of our our own relationships with our mothers and our own jealousies of our respective relationships with our mothers. And there, I mean, there was just a lot of that. And it was just like you can't mask that if it's organic.
2: Yeah,
0: you know that's interesting because me and John, we we read a Dostoevsky novel a couple of weeks ago, and the whole episode we were competing to see who was the biggest idiot.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I won. <laughs> Literary humor. <laughs> um, no, I. I definitely. That's interesting. Uh, that that sort of meta dynamic. It makes me wonder if podcasts will like themselves be analyzed as texts that are you know revealing of what it was like to be alive in this time.
1: I th- I, oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's already happening. Um, I think there's a lot of podcasts that sort of are consciously art. I know contain. Um, I, I haven't I actually haven't listened to contain but I, I know that that Barrett really is intentional with how he yeah. creates his episodes uh, the perfume nationalist as a similar mm. he calls it the ongoing story uh, and I, I you know I remember a while ago I quipped that that was kind of a silly thing to do but actually it's not I think it's a really interesting and unique and maybe more podcasts need to treat themselves as art instead of just sort of uh you know delivering information because it does add a really it adds a very you know, like, well, in- interesting really is the only word. It adds a compelling dimension to it.
2: Yeah, no, we, well, it's not me, it's Sam who does it, because Sam's the producer and the musician, but we, we try to do something similar. And yeah, Contain is a very, they they follow us on Substack. I don't know if they listen, uh, Contain, um, <laughs> but <laughs> but that's a very interesting um, podcast. I think they even had on that uh, guy you were talking about who was behind the Miladies once, Um so they definitely have interesting guests as well.
1: Um, well, hopefully they, they like what I what I have to say about them. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> they might just follow and not listen. Um, Angelicism01 follows too, which is strange. Do you know about Angelicism01?
1: I do. I do know hmm. about Angelicism.
2: Oh, wow. Well, that sounds like you might know more than you're willing to say.
1: <laughs> no, no. no. I, right. I mean, uh, one of the Angelicism Twitter accounts, I think are all run by like fans or whatever tweeted at me, the internet is over, go read Angelicism, and I was like, Angelicism is, Angelicism is over, go read James Joyce. <laughs> nice,
2: <laughs> nice. Yeah. We agree with nice that. Nice default, friend. <laughs> 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 Alright, well, we're coming up on about the amount of time we scheduled, so do you, what's next for you? Do you have anything you want to tell us you, you've got coming up, anything you want to promote?
1: Um, well... Uh, no. On the podcast,
0: um, on the podcast that thirty people listen to, yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: we have a hundred. We have a hundred subscribers. Oh, as we do. Today. Yeah. Oh, my apologies. I <laughs> could
1: uh, maybe uh, maybe I'll just help promote you guys.
2: Well, that's very kind. Thank ho- ho- you. <laughs> hopefully, you're,
1: you're, you're listening to this because you you came from my Substack. How about that? Yeah.
2: Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Likewise. So, default friend on Twitter, default friend on Substack. Make sure you check her out.
0: Default friend,
2: you've got mail.